name is Maria. My pronouns are she and her. And my name is Alyssa. My pronouns are also she and her. Welcome to LGBT Cliff Notes. Uh, Today's episode is on queering history, which is the process of doing history and making it, well, queer. Um, my, My goal here today is to try and unpack some of the terms and jargon and other crap of applying queer theory to historical methods. And, uh, boy, there's a lot to unpack. Um, we're not going to go too, too deep. It's going to be like a surface level sort of analysis. But, you know, if you like, you can think of this as my counterpart to Alyssa's methodology episode we did way back at the beginning. Um, which if you haven't given that episode a listen, you might want to afterwards as our processes are pretty similar. Um, also, just for the sake of example, I'm going to be referencing our episode on Julius Caesar here and there, um, since he's a well-known figure in history and most people are pretty well acquainted with the big story beats of his life. And so we'll need little, if any, exposition on the topic. Um, I might be a trained historian, but that doesn't mean every dead horse needs a beating. <laughs> but without further ado, let's begin. So as you might have guessed, the biggest issue when trying to find non-straight people in history is the lack of evidence in primary sources. When we say primary sources, we're referring to written records and accounts of people and events written contemporaneously. Now, the definition of contemporaneous can differ wildly depending on the time period. In the case of classical antiquity, which is the era of the Greek city-states, Macedonian successor states, and of course my dear beloved Rome, it can mean an account written a century or more would be considered to be contemporary. Yeah, I remember this like coming up in the Julius Caesar episode. It was like, yeah, well, they were written. Yeah, a little little after. Yeah. Like, you know, 100 years. Yeah. Now, if we compare that with a more modern subject, like, say, Charlie Parkhurst and, well, mm-hmm. the window shrinks to as little as like 10 years or fewer, depending on the sources, and of course also the event themselves. Um, Some events have more documentation than others, and some are just these little fragments of, you know, oral history, and that's all we have. So it kind of just depends on the subject and the time and, you know, what we're talking about. Now, while primary sources are the meat of any historical topic, they by themselves won't typically carry an argument without some help. Uh, This is where secondary sources come in. Secondary sources are, for lack of better wording, commentaries on primary source Mm -hmm. material and other types of evidence, like uh, archival records and archaeological finds, coins, inscriptions, and so on and so on and so on. That's my Slavoj Zizek. (laughs) Secondary sources are often critical of the primaries they deal with. They're usually the work of scholars and researchers dumping hundreds, if not thousands, of labor time hours into collating, comparing, and contrasting evidence, and are usually, almost always, I should say, under constant peer review. Um, This is partially why you keep seeing links to JSTOR in the show notes. That, and of course, the ever-present pandemic making going to the library a death-defying act. (laughs) I'm sure we're all quite familiar with it this time. Yeah, don't do it. Don't go to the library. Yeah, just 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 stay home whenever you can. It's like the only time in my life I will ever say that. <laughs> yeah. Stay home and please God, just don't go out to eat. Just just don't do it. Just Yeah. Just it's not it get... necessary. Yeah. It really is not. <laughs> yeah, and just wear a fucking mask. <clears throat> oh, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you might be wondering why I just gave you a Cliff Notes version. Get it? <laughs> of basic historical mm. methods. And the reason is that when we do queer history, we have to tackle with the concept of historicity. Now, by historicity, I mean presenting the past as authentically as possible 
using the sources we have, while taking into consideration the views and mores of the subjects in the period. Uh, going back to our Caesarian example, the whole reason his relationship with the King of Bithynia was scandalous wasn't the fact that it wasn't hetero, but because a Roman noble dared to let a foreign monarch top him. That's what I mean by mores, by the way. Okay, so is he... All right, so I, I've never heard the word historicity, but I fucking love it. Um, mm -hmm. So is historicity, like... I thought when you first said it, it was like being as accurate as you can. Um, mm -hmm. So is it like being as accurate as you can, but like also explicitly taking into account, you know, how, as you said, the social mores mm -hmm. of the time? It's, it's a bit of both. Um, and it kind of depends on the way you're doing history. There are, of course, I mean, there's, there's as many methods of getting to the truth in history as you might suspect. There are some people who say we should only interpret the sources from the viewpoints and, you know, social mores of the people who lived in that period. And there's people who say that we should actually not do that and go ahead and impose our modern viewpoints on them and compare and contrast it to. And I, I think it, as, as, as chicken shit as this sounds, ah, I was, I was going to make it through this whole episode without cussing. Damn it. Um, <laughs> were you? <laughs> I was. That was a goal. Okay. I, I made it five sure. minutes. Go me. <laughs> um, but uh, as cowardly as I think it, it sounds, I, I, I think the truth is in the middle. I think sometimes you have to do some stuff unhistorically. Well, we'll actually get into that later here. Oh. But but for the most part, I, I think we should try to keep in mind, you know, the 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 zeitgeist of the period when we start yeah. doing our our judgments on these long dead figures and all that. I mean, I think it's one of those things like, again, it probably depends on the historical period. So I wouldn't right? like the thing that I'm thinking of is much more recent. So when people want to talk about like, oh, well, you know, owning slaves was just normal in America. So like it wasn't, you know, they weren't doing anything wrong because that was what was normal at the time. But like we can and I I this might be sort of what you mean by comparing and contrasting. Like, we can go, no, <laughs> people definitely knew, like, you just know inherently that owning other people is bad. And so you can bring in, I mean, it, it, both of those things are true. Like, owning slaves was normal, but also uh, we know that, like, humans shouldn't own other humans. And also there were people at that time that, like, were like, no, this is not okay. Um, right. But I feel like it's like probably this. I don't know. I I can't think of another example. And that's such a loaded one. But I think yeah. it's one of those things where you, of course, you have to think about, you know, what the general. <laughs> I can't. Now I just want to say mores all the time. Like, mm -hmm. the, yeah, the general mores. But also, like, what were people really like actually thinking? Like, there are certain things that don't show up in books, but are universally just true right and and real fast though that 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 slavery thing wasn't as common as, as a lot of folks tend to think about even in the south that that slave owning class was extremely small but that's, that's an entirely different series which mm. you know <laughs> i don't want to do because i lived in the south for 30 years <laughs> please i need a break don't want to talk about it anymore so the whole reason i bring up historicity in the first place it's because when we do queer history, especially in a period as far back as Caesar, we often have to intentionally read the sources in a critical and often unhistorical manner. 
specifically like imposing our modern concepts of homosexuality and their terms on people who would have had no notion or concept mm. of what we mean. Uh, the Romans might have understood I mean, topping. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, okay. I feel like, yeah, I mean, you can't say they would have no notion of what homosexuality is. We would be like, yeah, it's when like two people who are of the same gender, you know, love each mm -hmm. other um, or have sex with each other. That's what we mean by homosexuality. Like, just because they didn't have a word doesn't mean that they wouldn't understand the difference. True. Well, I mean, well, let's let's let's. I, that's actually what I'm going to talk about just next. Because see, while the Romans oh, okay. might have understood the concept of like topping and bottoming, yeah, the the concept of bisexuality <laughs> that's harder to ascertain. Um, uh, again, erotic and romantic relationships between partners of multiple genders wasn't considered noteworthy enough to merit a distinction, at least in any of the primary sources I've read. The I focus. Mean, what about is that true of like women as well? Well, you know, that's. Well, different. see, exactly. So they did have some notion because I mean, if yeah, it wasn't, you know, yeah. So, mm, I, yeah, I, I, well, see, the thing, the problem is it's the focus is not on the difference or sameness of, of gender identity and all that. The focus was almost always on the relation of power and social hierarchy. Um, slaves weren't bottoms. They were just slaves. And the thought of letting one take the dominant role would have been nigh unthinkable to a, a good upstanding roman <laughs> but as you said caveat this is only true if you were a male because being a woman in the ancient world and really if we're being honest most of history is almost universally a yeah. pretty terrible existence as a second class citizen at best and again i feel like uh, <laughs> just <laughs> another so again like thinking about having to apply like what we know about humans to older times even though if there's like no examples of this at all like okay so are we also saying that just because we have no primary sources of romans talking about it like what about uh pegging like did women peg their husbands probably i Maybe. mean you know if we know that like men are having butt sex why wouldn't they sometimes be asking their wives to take a role like i i think a lot of this stuff would not have been talked about but like you know being mm -hmm. humans and thinking about sex a lot and oh yeah especially if you're like having you know a lot of like two people with penises sex like i don't know i just yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i'm not i'm not trying to say that like there weren't terms for this i mean we know there were terms for it um most of them are derogatory and, and really shitty but there were terms right. for it um again refer to the caesar episode right but <laughs> what i'm saying and and what I'm kind of getting at here is that while, yes, these activities certainly did happen. I mean, people fuck. That's just it's understood. We've already we've already broken the dam down. So I'm going to go ahead and just do it. Uh, people mm -hmm. fuck. And that's just all there is to it. And going back to, to like to, to your question or not question, but statement regarding like <laughs> pegging, like there are instances. And I want to say like either Euripides or Aristophanes where they talk about, you know, strap-ons being used. and Yeah, so that was totally happening. Yeah, yeah. so that, that, yeah, okay. some, so, someone probably got pegged in the ancient world and it was like, this is actually pretty good. At least at, at, several people. At <laughs> least, at least, I, I will safely say at least a dozen people in history got pegged. <laughs> you can quote her on that. <laughs> a dozen pegged Romans. So yeah, now the... 
kind of moving on a little bit here. The imposition <laughs> of this terminology that we're using here, it's while it's a little unhistorical, it's not the un, only unhistorical thing we have to do in cases like this. Um, and the reason it's unhistorical is simply because of the nature of the writer's moralities. Um, often any such displays of homosexuality would have been scandalized if they were even mentioned at all. We have no way to say with any foolproof certainty how prevalent bisexuality was among the Roman nobility simply because it just wasn't talked about. Our only real I mean, glimpses we can't into really... it. Sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> we can't really say that about modern day people. Like exactly. We still don't. We still can't pin down rates of like how many people are actually bisexual. Who knows? Yeah. Many. More than we think. Hell, we're having arguments now on what that word even fucking means, which is... Oh, Lord. <laughs> that, I don't want to do that episode, but it's going to have to happen at some point. <sighs> really? I mean... <laughs> uh, okay. But, again, going, like, just focusing just on the Caesarean, like, example that we're using here. Our only real glimpses into the frequency of, like, you know, same-sex relations in the Roman world are coming from sources like satirists and moralists and christian writers who were declaiming oh, no. the promiscuity and defective morality of their pagan ancestors and that's why we can't have no. drums in church um <laughs> no really what about wait don't we have like tambourines in church tambourines are drum-like they've got that scandal skin across a wooden frame S schismatics what are you doing to the camp i'm, I'm just kidding <laughs> Yeah, no, no, for like millennia, like drums and, and bells and flutes were just not allowed. Singing was, though, and that's why the white choirs exist and the organs different. It's church history is interesting. Huh. Okay. And it's it being a reaction to paganism is a very fun way to look at the early church. But more importantly, I think it's an accurate way to look at the oh, yeah. early church. So. Definitely. Fun and accurate. What could be better? However, we do have one source of, of this sorts of uh, evidence, and, uh, and they're brothels in Pompeii and Herculaneum, and they're in their little menus on the, on the <gasps> ceiling, which are what? very explicit. Oh my <clears throat> god, how did I not? Oh, that's, that's wonderful. But, but again, even then, even then, we have to remember, hierarchy. Are you putting, can, can we have these in the show notes? I want to see I, a brothel menu. I will, I will go ahead and throw up brothel menu in the show notes. <laughs> As a, you can have little uh for fucking first millennia whorehouse painting as a treat. Yay! <laughs> this episode is going places. I love it. Um, so yeah, so we have a couple issues here. Uh, we have a lack of textual evidence for things that almost certainly, like I say almost certainly, because, you know, we have to use our couching terms from the last episode. Uh, these things did happen. We know this happened. We know for a fact this happened, but we don't have any textual evidence in like, except for like a handful of cases. So we're left with a conundrum. How do we present a topic that went unrecorded, often intentionally, and has little textual evidence while backing it up with as much information as possible? Um, it's a fine line to walk and very easy to slip one way or the other into the calcified heteronormativity of the past mm. or mm. the modern practice of imposing queerness on everything, which is fun. Don't get me wrong. And I love doing it. 
Um, but it's not always authentic. Sometimes, sometimes we get lucky with a Hadrian who very clearly likes dudes a lot more than women. <laughs> um, but usually we have to sell, settle for an Elagabalus uh, episode forthcoming, uh, who was so hated by the literary class that we can't tell what's authentic and what's slander because it's all oh. just it's, it's all attack pieces. That's all we have about Elagabalus are from writers who are very much unsympathetic and dislike Elagabalus. And uh, the lack of me using pronouns here should be a guess as to why. Oh, nice. I was going to say, like, are you just trying to say Elagabalus as much as possible? Elagabalus. Elagabalus. I, I mean, yeah, that too. But also. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good it's a good name. I like that. name. Maybe I'll name, name my next like cat that Elagabalus. Elagabalus, <laughs> you stop that right now. That is a good name for a cat. <laughs> But yeah, but even if we do have a clear, cut and dry case of good, upstanding gayness, we still have to be kind of careful in how we treat the subject. Upstanding gayness. Let's let's change gears just for a second. Let's change gears and look at Charlie Parkhurst again. Yay! Here we have a pretty textbook trans man who was regarded as being male and would have said as much and probably fought anybody who said otherwise. Can we call him a transgender man? I say yes, of course, but that opinion isn't necessarily universal, even among queer historians. Charlie probably wouldn't have called himself that. The term didn't exist until 1965, when John F. Oliver wrote Sexual Hygiene and Pathology, which, oof, what a title. Mm, um, yeah. So, but how I would... I feel like it's, like it's like bisexuality or homosexuality in Romans. Like, if you, you don't have to use the word transgender, but if you're like, you know, Charlie, <laughs> what, you know, what did the doctor tell your mom you were at birth? And, mm. you know, what would you say your gender is now? You know, I, I think, you know, he'd be he'd be able to do that, even if he was yeah. like, well, no, I'm not transgender. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, we, we kind of hard to tell how he would have described himself in like private sympathetic company. I mean, I, I have no fucking idea. I, I again, I, I suspect you probably would have just been like, I'm I'm a guy. Want to fight about it? No. Good. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So these are like the sorts of things we have to deal with. We have to deal with a lack of evidence, but very knowing full well that it's existing. Before we go, I do want to share a couple quotes from an article by Valerie Traub uh, entitled The New Unhistoricism in Queer Studies. Um, which, while a fun read, is also just dense with jargon. Uh, I will include it in the show notes. It's uh, available on JSTOR for free. So if you have a JSTOR account, go look at it. And if you don't... Speaking just, you of know. jargon, I love the... We've got historicity and unhistoricism, <laughs> mm -hmm. which are two words I didn't know, but are great. So yeah, here, here, here's just a little snippet. So... In the article, she's talking about a number of historians and them using unhistoricism as a tool. Um, she says, quote, Their readings offer persuasive examples of how queerness animates and troubles ostensibly heterosexual literary texts and cultural discourses. Their strengths as critics reside in their ability to see beyond heterosexuality's inscription on textual form, as well as their attentiveness to the vicissitudes of desire and the failures of sexuality. Their readings amply demonstrate the stresses and fractures in the normative, as well as the distinctive ability of literary texts to solicit our awareness of such productive contradictions and indeterminacy. End quote. Okay, that's so fucking unnecessary. Oh my god, come on, <laughs> Valerie Traub. You could have written that in, like, a way more understandable way. I hate that shit. 
I don't disagree. So, all right, let's unpack this a little bit here. (laughs) Because you do her job for her. (laughs) I'm not going to go that far. In more reasonable terms. Uh, You're you're the peach. I'll let you sling the mud. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't support in any in any field. People should say what they mean as simply as possible. You know, I think an intelligent person should with with like a minimum amount of looking up words, be able to understand what you're saying. And like, there's way too many. I'm looking at this. There's like all these three syllable and four syllable words that are just like super unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to to pull your lexicon out and hit people with it from time to time. But I mean, (laughs) this is a little more fusion for me. So I, I yeah. want to I want for a couple things just from this little section. First off, the failures of sexuality. Um, what a what a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. as as far as I was able to understand it from reading this article, and I may not have understood it. I don't know. Maybe well, I'm, I'm willing to. I'm <laughs> Is willing it maybe to... because the language was meant for you not mm-hmm. to understand it it's almost like there's mm-hmm. weird class relations in academic writing and how they're almost designed uh. and for social stratification or something see i can do that shit oh too stratification that's a five syllable amazing yeah. <laughs> good job <laughs> Um, so by failures of sexuality i i think what's being said here is not necessarily like you know being bad at doing sex i think it's more just like the failure of labeling sexuality perhaps like like bisexual does not mean the same thing for every single person necessarily just like you know transgender doesn't mean the same thing etc 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 again though if you just and i mean actually i still do this in the present day like i will generally just say gay but if it's like I don't know, like if I was at a seminar specifically about sexuality, like I don't think really any of these very common shorthand terms we use, they're good for just like a quick, you know, I don't know when you have to. But like, I much prefer to describe like both my gender and sexuality in like a phrase or short sentence Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I just yeah, I don't I think that people have, you know, so much the the one word whatever it is, gay or bi or trans, like people have certain preconceptions about those things. And if you just use a short sentence or phrase instead, then there's no like preconception. And so it doesn't go through the filter of like them thinking they know what that is. And, you know, you can you can just say it more directly. Yeah. Yeah. I I do want to say, though, I do agree with her when she says that like this tool this tactic of intentionally issuing historical like uh sort of like for here like analyses i suppose can be used to get like like break the chains of heteronormativity as it were i i agree there i, I do think it is in fact a very strong uh tactic as it were maybe you don't do it all the time but it's definitely something to keep in the toolbox um she does go on later to conclude quote resisting unwarranted teleologies we don't need to do oh my fucking god (laughs) oh you're gonna hate this you're gonna fucking hate this (laughs) resisting unwarranted teleologies while accounting for resonances and change will bring us closer to achieving the difficult and delicate balance of apprehending historical sameness and difference continuism and hilarity that the past as past presents to us the more we honor this balance 
the more complex and circumspect will be our comprehension of the relative incoherence and relative power of past and present conceptual categories as well as of the dynamic relations among subjectivity, sexuality, and historiography. End quote. Jesus fucking Christ. I'm gonna, like, oh, <laughs> I wish I had... I wish I had seen these quotes beforehand and then quickly come up with like a much simpler, better way of saying it just to just to put it in here, because no, resisting unwarranted teleologies while accounting for resonances like I so unnecessary. There's, that's, there, there's a million better ways to start that sentence. I'm I'm actually kind of glad you didn't get I didn't let you see these beforehand because like <laughs> I, I this raw reaction this this visceral is it's good I like it oh, oh it's no, yeah, I, I hate, it's nice like, to not be the only one oh. yeah well I fought I mean usually I fight against it in like uh God what do I want to call it like scientific in like a, a chemistry or biological sense scientific papers where I'm like okay. I, it's the same shit like uh, a lot of times I and you don't run into it as much with PhD students. You still do. Um, mm-hmm. But especially like undergraduates when they write shit, you're just like, no. And so, yeah, I really hate seeing that in papers. And I do actually when I write um, my stuff for publication, I have people who are not in my field read it to mm-hmm. make sure it's understandable. And I I wish that that was like a standard practice like everyone should be trying to write to like yes an intelligent audience Mm -hmm. but not specifically for your field like you know yeah yeah yeah. it's a it's a pet peeve for sure for sure i have i have a long-standing grudge against people using way more complex language than is necessary i i'm again inclined to agree I now I do I will play devil's advocate a little bit here and say like you know this 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 is a publication meant for people whose whole field is like you know queer studies and stuff like that so I'm I'm sure if you're dealing with this jargon on a daily basis it's a lot less intimidating um but I'm not one of those people and I had to read this and try to make sense of it and I'm 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 like fifty percent sure I I I succeeded but I'm only like fifty percent sure I succeeded. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't think that, yeah. that, I don't think that that should be true. Like, I think that, yeah, I, the argument that like, oh, it's written only for people in your field, it fucking shouldn't be. You should be writing yeah. for way broader audiences than that. And I mean, even when it is like your exact field, if we're talking about like going to conferences or whatever, like, I mean, maybe there's very specific. I don't know. Maybe it's different when it's not like biology, but like when I go to conferences, yeah, there's a, you know, there's some people that are in my little niche and will automatically go, oh yeah, I totally remember what Denisovans are exactly. And I know what admixture is and Mm -hmm. introgression, but like by far most people don't. And it's just another one of those things where like, if you're using words that people have to guess at, they're like, missing your message and maybe they have other ideas about what those words are and like so just use mm-hmm. just use simpler or, language and explain i don't you, mm. yeah, yeah this, at the very least <laughs> if you if you're going long. to use jargon if you have to use jargon at least unpack it at least a little bit oh yeah yeah absolutely uh, yeah. you have to define in the beginning you know you should you should find some fucking like 4.0 GPA high school student and be like, do you know what this word means? <laughs> and if they don't, uh, then you have to turn it down. That word. 
that's yeah. that's the metric. I mean, I, I say this as someone who has like, you know, on occasion as a flex put like, you know, big chunks of untranslated Latin into papers before. Um, <laughs> but mostly I did that to piss off my advisor because, you know, eh, turnabout's fair play, buddy. Hope you're doing well. <laughs> um. So yeah, so that's that's our little mini episode today on on history and and how we make it, how we how we give it the the little bit of the the gayness, uh, for science. Yeah. See, both topics. <laughs> Inclusivity. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that that's the show. I I did have a joke written here about how I managed to not curse, but uh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. We don't. We, you tried yeah. though. You know. I did. There was. I made a... it five minutes. Yeah, that's something. <laughs> One day. One day, maybe I'll pull it off. Uh, but not today, because, you know, fuck it. Uh, so, yeah, um, <laughs> that that's it. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Chat with us on Discord. Follow us on yeah. Patreon if you like the show. I probably know how this goes at this point. You've been listening mm-hmm. for a while. Um, and if you haven't, well, feel free to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Chat with us on Discord. And if you really like the show, follow us on Patreon. <laughs> Um, so yeah, thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next one or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, bye. Bye. <laughs>